Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a conversation about building trust in the black community regarding the COVID-19 vaccines. Every community has a different set of resources, and we need to use the assets in those communities because those assets are tied to trust. Morehouse School of Medicine President and Dean Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice joins me. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, this memorial services for Braves legend Hank Aaron will be held this week. He died Friday at the age of 86. Now, a private memorial for Aaron will be held tomorrow at 1 p.m. inside Truist Park. Aaron's funeral, which will also be private, will be Wednesday afternoon at Friendship Baptist Church here in Atlanta. And we'll have the service live here on WABE during Closer Look. Meanwhile, after a week of budget hearings, the full Georgia legislature returns to the Gold Dome this week. Now, lawmakers who are away from the Capitol will resume twice-weekly COVID-19 tests. And this comes as the Georgia Department of Public Health confirmed three more coronavirus-related deaths on Sunday. And to date, it's 11,801 Georgians have died due to the virus. In addition, 48,385 people have been hospitalized, and of those, 8,199 were ICU admissions. In total, here's your number, 718,532 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed here in Georgia. And as always, we get our information from the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, we had a question from a listener who wanted to know, why don't we report numbers on those who have recovered from the virus? That's a good question, but we don't have the numbers, but certainly it is worth researching. So stay tuned. This is Closer Look. Support for Closer Look comes from the Candida Fund, proud supporter of Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, working for a fair and inclusive Georgia where all people prosper. More at gbpi.org. And from Big Brothers Big Sisters of Metro Atlanta, presenting the iconic mentor auction, where you can bid on a mentoring experience from iconic leaders like Shaq and Arthur Blank. Learn more at bbbsatl.org. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. A week ago, Grady Health System CEO announced the hospital was, quote, full. In a letter, CEO Dr. John Harper wrote the following, quote, If admissions continue to climb, I worry we will face what hospitals in other states grapple with, 
tough choices on providing care, close quote. He also noted that while the distribution of COVID-19 vaccine is promising, the state will likely see more COVID-19 hospitalizations in the meantime. Of course, all of this puts a strain on our state's hospitals, and as a result, our healthcare workers, all of them, which means a shortage of healthcare professionals. But this was something presented last year. And joining me now to talk more about how his company is responding to this, Shane Jackson, president of Jackson Healthcare, a healthcare staffing agency based here in Georgia. Welcome back to the program. Thanks, Rose. So great to be with you again. Let's begin here because at the time of this conversation, we're looking at 25 million plus confirmed cases and now the nation projecting to reach a half million deaths in just a few weeks. Your thoughts on that? Well, it's we are definitely in the period that we unfortunately uh, can all solve uh, coming. Um, hoped wouldn't be the case, but has, has certainly been the case uh, as we thought through the winter, particularly coming out of the holidays, just the environment was such that with this virus, we we really thought it was gonna to get to where it is. And we're there, as we've heard, this is the the, the, the dark period of this. And, and we're hoping is the is the worst of it. Um, but we're feeling it, as you, as you said from uh, Dr. Halpert at Grady, uh, that's just a, a one example and a very typical example of what we're hearing and seeing with a lot of our, most of our hospital uh, partners around the country. When we spoke in, I believe it was last time in April, and and I asked you about meeting the demand for healthcare workers, and you talked about, well, if we're able to not have, as you put it, too many, quote, New Yorks. Well, the nation has reached, quote, a lot of New Yorks now. We have the highest risk places, which include Arizona, South Carolina, Georgia, Rhode Island, and New York. Um, With these numbers with what you all do, have you seen, have you been able to meet the demands for staffing within the healthcare industry as it relates to the, the, the pandemic? Well, you have a good memory. And uh, that's exactly what I was saying last spring is the difference between now and where we were last spring and, and really through most of last year, the summer and fall, was that we had these hot spots, if you will, but they were sporadic. And so we had other areas of the country that had lower levels of cases. And so we were able to move healthcare workers around the country to the places where they were most needed. Let me that add- really changed in November. Really? And, uh, yeah, it, it's what we saw in November through, um, through most of the country was an increase in, in cases and subsequently an increase in hospitalizations. Let me and, ask you. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, and, and so and so it's just a very different situation today. We don't have areas of the country that have low case volume that can spare, say, uh, nursing. Um, it's just not the case. Now, there is, our industry does exist with, uh, and, and no one knows the exact number, but, you know, 150 or so thousand healthcare workers that this is what they do. And they, they just move around the country kind of all the time anyway, uh, seasonally based on where needs are and that sort of thing. And so we do have still the ability to leverage some of our nurses and, and doctors, mm-hmm. therapists and others that kind of work in, in this industry and work in this way, but it's, it's, it's limited. And right now, unfortunately it's insufficient to meet the need. Well, that was my next question. I was 
concerned about what positions are most in demand? Are we talking about also support positions or also, you know, I guess what one would consider, you know, whether someone who works in a ICU unit or, or what have you, what's mostly in demand here? The, the primary crunch is in nursing. Nursing. Specifically and especially with critical care nurses who can work with very, very sick patients. But uh, because there are so many patients that are coming, presenting critically, even what we call med surge nurses, these are the, the, the nurses that work with pretty much any patient that's been admitted to the hospital. Uh, that's where we're really seeing it the most, still to a degree with uh, respiratory therapists and others that are you know, working with patients that have been ventilated, although that's, that's not quite uh, where it was last year. And then on the physician side, uh, intensivist, uh, critical care physician, pulmonologist, um, doctors that are working with COVID patients, that's where we're really seeing it. But in general, nursing is where we're seeing the biggest crowd. The voice you hear is Shane Jackson, president of Jackson Healthcare, a healthcare staffing company based here in Georgia. Shane, let me ask you this. Have you had folks who've left the field primarily because it's just too much to handle or concerns about their own safety? We have, and it's something that's contributing to the problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly, understandably, in many situations, if you have, say, a nurse who is, is later in her career, uh, or in a situation where in a highly vulnerable uh, uh, environment, uh, uh, then then you can understand that decision. Mm-hmm. But when you have medical providers pulling themselves out of the workforce, uh, it's tough. I, I will say, in addition to that, what we're really seeing is a lot of burnout. Mm-hmm. Uh, doctors, nurses who have been going at this pace now for months, and it is, it's stressful, it's hard, it, it creates limits on how they can spend time with their other family and friends and all that sort of thing. And just psychologically, emotionally, physically, it's exhausting. And so that is certainly creating challenges. I'll tell you, it was, it was a challenge over the holidays for people who just finally wanted to take a few days off to spend with their family, which is great. You can't blame them for that, but guess what? The patients are still there. Mm-hmm. And so it's certainly creating a challenge right now. And it's, I will say, it's also a concern looking forward to the day that we're all looking forward to when, uh, when, when the COVID numbers decrease and, and that sort of thing. What, what's going to happen to specifically our nursing workforce and, and how many are going to continue to work versus choose to, to leave nursing when this is over? Shane, do you know if any of the folks you all have supplied in terms of staffing, if anyone do you have numbers in terms of those that might have contracted the virus or, sadly, any deaths? Uh, I do have those numbers. I don't know the number off the top of my head mm-hmm. of how many have contracted it. It's uh, somewhere, give or take, 150 or so, but it's, it's not exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do know we've had one death. One death. Mm-hmm. What is the future for an industry like yours with health care staffing? Are you concerned that with this pandemic, it will definitely change not only folks who want to enter this this industry, this field, but also in support staff, too, as well? What concerns do you have? Well, I'm first of all, I'm optimistic about our industry in general uh, and what we do. And I'm also optimistic about the future of caregiving professions. The, the flip side to all we've talked about of what 
these brave individuals are going through emotionally and physically is that people largely enter into this kind of a role because of their care for others and they're wanting to serve and take care of others when they're in their most vulnerable state of being very sick. Um, and it's, it's you know, great to see our nursing schools are still full and our applicants to come into medical school and all that is, is still happening. And so I don't, I don't think this is going to change the desire for people to come in. If anything, I think it's probably put healthcare and medical care on the radar for a lot of people who may not have thought about it before. I mean, you know, I think about, I have, I have teenage kids and, and what they're exposed to and thinking about right now around human frailty and disease was not on my radar as a teenager, I can tell you. And so hoping that, that it may even uh, attract a lot of people who are aware of this and want to go study infectious disease and, and, and be the one that finds the vaccine uh, that's needed next and all those things. Well, we thank you for what you all are doing. Shane Jackson is president of Jackson Healthcare, a healthcare staffing company based here in Georgia. Shane, thank you for taking the time and coming back. We're going to check back with you throughout as we all continue with this pandemic. Thank you so much, Shane. Great. Thanks, Rose. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Ambassador Andrew Young, Dr. Lewis W. Sullivan, Zenona Clayton, and the late Hank Aaron. Pioneers, obviously, in civil rights and for Dr. Sullivan in medicine. And recently, they all received COVID-19 vaccinations at the Morehouse School of Medicine. The event was held not just for their own well-being, but to also encourage black America to get immunized. My next conversation took place right before it was announced that Hank Aaron had died. And since then, a statement from the Morehouse School of Medicine reads in part, quote, Mr. Aaron was a public health advocate and worked with us to help bridge the health equity gap in Atlanta and around the world. His passing was not related to the vaccine, nor did he experience any side effects from the vaccine. He passed away peacefully in his sleep. So now we'll pick up the conversation with the president and dean of the Morehouse School of Medicine, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. Madam President, as always, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's always my pleasure. Here we are once again. And at the time of this conversation, the nation has confirmed more than 24 million cases of this virus. Now more than 400,000 deaths with a projection of a half million in a few weeks. Uh, What do you make of all this? Did you ever imagine a year ago that this nation would reach those numbers? You know, Rose, I have to say uh, it saddens me for you to be able to give those numbers and for us to know that they're accurate. 
And we had a some insight that we were moving along this pathway. If you read or, or follow uh, what Johns Hopkins is putting out, if you follow up what Chris is putting out at IAG, I think it's IHEE, uh, if you follow those numbers, you know that this could happen. And they gave us models that if we did the wash your hands, wear your mask, watch your distance, how we could mitigate some of the virus mm. uh, impact and, and some of the cases. And then we are now starting to have modeling with the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So did I think we could get here? Yes, because we do know how infectious this virus is. Was I hoping that we would not get here? I was hopeful, but here we are. The key thing is what do we do now mm -hmm. such that we're not having this conversation six weeks or six months from now and are not seeing a downward trend uh, in deaths, hospitalization, and eventually in cases. And then just last week we learned Georgia was now fourth in the nation with hospitalizations, that coming from a federal report. It said, quote, Georgia is in full pandemic resurgence and will experience continued increases in new COVID hospital admissions and fatalities that coming from a White House coronavirus task force. So when you look at Georgia, because now we're bringing this close to home, but you have to look at what maybe the state could have done better in terms of preparing for this and not to get you all caught up in politics, but these numbers that Georgia has now, some of them could have been prevented. Do you believe that? I believe that not just Georgia, but the entire nation could have done a better job. Now, in all fairness to our leadership, early on when um, everything broke loose in March and April, um, I was on task force with the governor's people, mm -hmm. and we were talking about how do we increase testing. And they rolled out a plan with the, um, with the Augusta University. And I think that that helped with some of the testing, but I still think that there are opportunities to improve testing. Mm -hmm. I have been in multiple conversations with uh, Dr. Toomey, and she has been very receptive to our ideas and open. I think that one of the things that happened in all fairness to everyone, Rose, is that the messages that were coming from the leadership at the top mm -hmm. were so mixed. And I do not think it was appropriate and, and still don't think it's appropriate for every state to try to develop their own strategy. Mm -hmm. There are clearly federal resources that can be garnered and, and, and shaped together that we can have a national strategy for testing and a national strategy for vaccinations. And what we've been working on and have rolled out in our, as where we can, is a resource aligned strategy. And why do I call it resource aligned? Because every community has a different set of resources. Mm -hmm. And we need to use the assets in those communities because those assets are tied to trust and relationships and uh, a foundation that has been forged over many, many years, such that when I call someone and say, oh, you need to get tested, mm -hmm. that's different than the secretary of HHS calling and saying you need to be tested. Mm -hmm. Or I'm willing to put this vaccine in my arm 
that's different than them seeing someone else who they're not familiar with put it in their arm. And so those relationships, those foundations of trust that we've built over the years matter. And so I think that there is intentionality with mm-hmm. our leadership to get this right. And we're willing to work with them and help in any way we can at Morehouse School of Medicine. And speaking of trust, I remember when we had a conversation, I think back in September, and correct me, either you are still or you were on the NIH panels to review some of the clinical trials for COVID-19, correct? Correct. So, yes. So I continue. Our work has decreased because we now had the two vaccines that Mm -hmm. have come and and uh, we believe AstraZeneca will be next and then hopefully Johnson & Johnson. But what w- our focus has so sh- sort of shifted, we really shifted our focus into ensuring that the materials that are being put out about the vaccines is accurate and that is culturally and linguistically appropriate for a vast and diverse community. You told me that you w- wanted to make sure that it would everything would be fully explained and in language. Yes. That could be understood, whether we're talking about risk and and benefits, but all of that. When it comes to science and evidence, as we talk about this vaccine, Uh when it comes to science and evidence, is that enough? I'm going to get real for a moment, like we in your living room. Okay. Is that that enough in the campaign to encourage more blacks to get the vaccine? Now, as you said, since we're in my living room. We're talking. Surely that's not enough, Okay. And I can probably break down science uh, to a level that anybody can understand it. And that won't be enough. That won't be enough based on this historical context that we've lived in of the mistrust that we've had between the black community, the Latinx community and the health system. And people are experiencing this every day. So that even beyond COVID, right? Mm -hmm. People are experiencing this when they're trying to get in to see a doctor about their diabetes and a hypertension, or or they are pregnant and they think their doctor's not listening to them. So we have a whole history of this. And what we tried to do, Rose, when I say we, I'm talking about the four historical black medical schools, Mm -hmm. the National Urban League, the Black uh, Coalition Against COVID, uh, blackdoctors.org. What we have been trying to do is to have a series of national town hall meetings where we brought the premier scientists, and I say premier only in the sense of they were the ones who have been on the forefront of the vaccine development. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Marks, Dr. Mejanay, Dr. Uh, Nunez Smith, who is now with the Biden transition team, or the Biden-Harris team. Now they're not transitioning anymore, <laughs> thank goodness. Um, and so we've had those persons on. And we've had people at the NIH on. We've had the scientist, Dr. Uh, Dr. Corbin, we've had her on. And we had those people on to talk about the science. And then we've had people like myself and community leaders and Dr. Calvin Butts and other persons to say, okay, community, you've heard the science. Ask us any question about it. Mm-hmm. Now we said, we got a disease, you all that is disproportionately impacting black and brown people. And it's not because we black and brown. It is because the circumstances which we find ourselves. We are these essential workers. We are the people who live in multi-generational homes. Mm -hmm. We are the ones who cannot socially distance. We are doing these essential jobs that keep our infrastructure of this country working. You 
are going to have an increased risk just by exposure. Now you can do something about it along with the health prevention strategy. And folks like you and the other medical institutions, you all have said, and I think I read a quote from you, you said, I would not recommend this vaccine if I did not believe that it was safe. And that is the message that you all are getting out. I'm not sure the data yet really reveals in terms of demographics, you know, based on race, who is taking the vaccine. But how would you assess, is the message working though? Are y'all reaching, especially those who are 65 and older? So we are we are making some progress, Rose, mm-hmm. and I'm excited about it. So let me tell you what I'm measuring it by. Okay. First of all, we've had seven town hall meetings, and we have three to five thousand people on those town hall meetings, and we usually do them in the evening. And then, Rose, what we've had is about twenty thousand people afterwards to look at them. So I we know that that's working. People are getting the message. We've also, you know, we have a SEAL grant, which is the grant that we got for the, for the state of Georgia that was given out by the NIH to increase communication in the state of Georgia. We've been doing town halls and local events very well attended. I speak on numerous occasions about this and so do other people. So we know those messages are getting out there. And what we, when we start to now look at the surveys though, so when we first started the surveys in March and April, 60 to 70% of people said they wouldn't take the vaccine. Mm-hmm. That's now down to around 30 to 40%. Mm-hmm. So this vaccine hesitancy is moving to vaccine acceptance. And when you talked about, you opened up the segment talking about that we did a visual display mm-hmm. of Ambassador Young, okay, Lewis Sullivan, Clayton. Um, other people, yeah. Nona Clayton, all those people getting their vaccine. First of all, they were all 65 and older. Mm-hmm. So they were they met the qualification. They met the qualification in the phase 1A. But we wanted to do that so that people would see we would not put something in the arms of our heroes that we did not think was safe. Mm-hmm. And we need to protect them. That's part of what we do to continue our legacy. We have to protect ourselves and we have to protect those who have paved the way for us. They truly are our treasures. But now let me ask you this um, as a scientist, as a physician, are you do you have concerns about how effective these vaccines that have already been approved, how they will work now? Because we hear not one, but another coronavirus variant. Do you have some concerns with this new variant? So, so as a scientist and, 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 and for the uh, limited amount that I know about virology, mm-hmm. this is what viruses do. Viruses mutate and they try to outsmart you. And so when you are developing a vaccine, you want to be one step ahead or actually three steps ahead of what you think the virus is going to do. This is why we do research, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have, the, 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 the vaccine is targeted against that little spike protein that everybody sees, right? Mm-hmm. And what we have been able to show thus far in the early looking at these variants is that there's still protection. But this is something that's going to be ongoing. This is no real different than what we do with the flu vaccine, Rose. 
we make the flu vaccine 12 to 18 months probably ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And it's predicting what that flu vaccine is going to have done over that period of time <clears throat> based on the environmental circumstances. Mm -hmm. This co this uh, coronavirus is, is smart. I don't think it's smarter than us, though. <laughs> and so what I say to people is that when people ask you to sign up for a clinical trial, like Morehouse School of Medicine, mm -hmm. we have a vaccine trial going on right now with another uh, candidate vaccine with Novavax. We ask people to go online and sign up. Why should you do that? Because we need to have knowledge about unanticipated side effects and that is going to work in a diverse group of people. And if I tell somebody who's under the age of 30, let me say something to you if you're under the age of 30. You way down on the list of being eligible to get the <laughs> vaccine. You way down on the list. Yeah. I, if I was you, I would go sign up to be on a clinical trial. And why would I do that, you all? Because with Moderna and Pfizer, for those people who were in those clinical trials, they are now being unblinded. Okay, so they were in the trial for about 60 days. <clears throat> they are now being unblinded. If they are on placebo, if they got placebo, guess what they're, they're, what's happening to them that day mm -hmm. when they get unblinded? They're getting the, the vaccine. vaccine. So mm -hmm. you have a chance to jump the line fairly because you have done your service. You participated in a trial. You added to the scientific knowledge and you will be rewarded. While we know it's important to focus on obviously saving lives, the vaccine, mitigating the spread, where do we go from here? What has this nation learned about its approach and about public health policy in general? What are the lessons learned here? First of all, I would say that this COVID-19 pandemic has, as I've said many times, Rose, it pulled the curtain down. It didn't just allow people to look behind the curtain, it snatched the curtain down so that people see the health disparities and the health inequities in this country. And they saw and they are seeing that it's not about just your race or ethnicity. It is about the social determinants of health that have led to this chronicity of the health disparities. And when people are starting behind the eight ball and the eight ball gets thrown at them, you know that they're gonna have a worse outcome. And that's exactly what we're seeing. We're also seeing how invaluable leadership is and transparency and telling the truth. And when you don't know, say you don't know, but bring around the table diverse thinkers, people who've had diverse experience, so they can add to the richness of the solution of solving the problem. What I say to your listeners, to our listeners, who are many people of our community, you must first continue to wash your hands, watch your distance, wear your mask. And then I've added a P on this. Be patient. And when your turn comes, get the vaccine. The vaccine is another tool in our toolkit for defeating this virus. And I ask them to watch as we get more and more people vaccinated, you're going to see the death rate start to go down. 
then you're going to see hospitalization rates start to go down. Then eventually we will see cases start to go down. You must do your part. The other thing that I would say to them is be a partner in your community. Mm -hmm. Be a partner with the research scientists. If someone calls you and asks you to think about being on a clinical trial, get more information, find out about it. Think about enrolling in a clinical trial, whether it's a therapeutic trial, whether you have had COVID and someone is asking you to donate your plasma so we can do convalescent plasma treatments or we can create monoclonal antibodies, participate in that. If someone asks you, if you haven't had COVID-19, you want to be a member of a uh, of COVID-19 trial, sign up for it. You all, this is our responsibility to our community and to ourselves. We're going to post a link to a love letter to Black Americans from the Black Coalition Against COVID-19, which you are a part of. And it, I'm just going to read the first few lines. It says, Dear Black America, we love you. We affirm that Black lives matter, and as Black health professionals, we have a higher calling to stand for racial justice and to fight for health equity. That's right. I think that line in this. That's what it's about, Rose. That's what it's about. We are empowered to save ourselves. I always tell people we are the ones that we have been waiting for. There is nobody else. And we can do this. So let's band together to make it happen. And finally, finally, how are y'all doing at Be More House School of Medicine? We are doing well. Uh, you know, we've been trying to do these vaccination Saturdays. We've been vaccinating about 500 people every Saturday. Um, we're going to do that for the next two Saturdays. The challenge is, Rose, we don't have enough vaccine. Mm-hmm. And if we got more vaccine, uh, we opened up a, a, a satellite site at Spelman the other day. We'll open up more sites and because I've gotten all of our medical students who are trained and certified to do vaccinations. We're building a workforce. We are ready to serve. We are ready to serve. Any idea when you will get more doses? Well, the governor said that he is definitely requesting more doses. We're in conversation every week with the Department of Public Health and Commissioner Toomey and her team asking them for more vaccine. Uh, Grady has been a great partner. Grady actually partnered with us on the uh, when we get did the civil rights leaders, because we hadn't gotten our, our doses, but John Hopper, the C- CEO, and I thought it was so important that we continue to have touch points of, of, uh, with our community. President and Dean of the Morehouse School of Medicine right here in Atlanta, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, as always, thank you for taking the time and thank you for what you all do for the community. It's very important. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rose, all for right. what you do. And again, that conversation with the president and dean of the Morehouse School of Medicine, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. Coming up next, Atlanta City Councilman Antonio Brown talks about public safety and wellness and all that. We're back in a moment. This is Closer Look.
And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. 157 homicides in 2020 in the city of Atlanta. It was the most in decades and crime overall, well, it increased. Now, depending on whom you ask, the reason... Here's Atlanta Mayor Keishlands Bottoms reason could have been caused by those visiting Atlanta because our bars and nightclubs were open. Now, here's what Mayor Bottoms said back in November. What we are seeing, again, because Atlanta is open for business and other cities don't have nightclubs and bars open. We are seeing a number of people traveling from out of state uh, to come to Atlanta to go to the nightclubs and to the bars because we're we're open as if we're not in the midst of a pandemic. Now, could that be a reason? Well, last week, by unanimous vote, the Atlanta City Council passed a resolution to conduct a feasibility study regarding a Department of Public Safety and Wellness. Now, how might this add in decreasing violent crime in our city? I asked Councilmember Antonio Brown, who introduced the measure and who represents Atlanta District 3, that very question and more. Councilmember Brown, good to talk to you again. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, no, thank you so much, Rose, for having me on today. Before we dig deeper into why you all want this feasibility study, have you had a chance to review last year's overall crime statistics? I have. And it's, I mean, from what history has shown us, it's the worst in the last two decades. And I mean, it it doesn't seem as though it's getting better. We're actually moving into 2021 with, I mean, homicides happening all over the city. And it's an extremely unfortunate circumstance right now. Yeah, I had a chance to look at the APD's crime stats and I went through all the different zones and homicides were drastically up. Now we played a clip from a November press conference with Mayor Bottoms and that was the reason she gave then. The mayor contends a spike in crime could be outsiders coming to Atlanta. Your thoughts on that, Councilman Brown? I'm not saying that that is not a... um, contributing factor necessarily, but but I, I believe that that's the surface level reasoning behind what's occurring. I think when you really dive into the root of the issue and as, in, as a council member that represents uh, some of the poorest communities in Atlanta that have been poor for decades in this city, I think what you're seeing is generational poverty that has gone unaddressed for decades that has now spilled over into other communities. Because the reality is, yeah, you may not have heard about it in Buckhead, but it's been happening on the west side of Atlanta for years. And it's been happening at the same rates it's currently happening now. I just think now that it's spilled over into other communities, it's getting a lot more attention than maybe it was before. Have you, or either the council as a whole, had conversations with Mayor Bottoms about this? I know there's been some back and forth through the media, but have you all sat down as a full body, a government body to talk about this? It seems like you all have a strategy and then the mayor has her strategy. Y'all just seem a little disconnected. Rose, Rose, as you're aware, at my swearing in, I made an ask to Mayor Bottoms and to President Felicia Moore that in order for us to move this city forward, we would need to work together. Um, especially when addressing our low-income communities. And one of the most disheartening things in which I've witnessed on council is the divide between the executive branch and the legislative branch. And all all it's done 
is deter the progress that we could make if we've worked in a collaborative environment. There is no reason why a council member reaches out to the mayor of this city or to any member of the administration or vice versa. The mayor reaches out to a council member or the administration reaches out to the council member and there is not a collaborative effort to get the needed work done in this city. What's the problem? I honestly, I believe it's ego and pride. I, I believe that that, granted, none of us are perfect. We, we, all, we all possess some of that ego and pride. And I think what it comes down to is, you know, there's constantly a discussion. I know on council, I've heard on, on several occasions and from the administration about who takes credit for what. And I've said from the very start of my term, it shouldn't matter who takes credit. It's about the work getting done, you know? Um, and I, I, I honestly have struggled with that on council. I mean, I've reached out to Mayor Bottoms on numerous occasions and voiced my concern about the lack of collaboration on council and the fact that we need to do a better job of working together. And I remember at one point she acknowledged and said that she agreed and she would work to do a better job at, at really um, bringing council together. So, you know, I'm not really sure where this has broken down, where this communication has broken down, but it's exhausting. It's exhausting to be in an environment in which you feel as though you have to, you have to guard everything you do and say because someone's gonna attempt to use it against you or to undermine you in an attempt to achieve their own political agenda. Are you talking about fellow council members or are you talking about Mayor Bottoms or and other folks? I, I'm just speaking in general. Okay. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying it's council members. I'm not saying it's Mayor Bottoms. I'm just speaking about the atmosphere, the environment in which I know, I'm, I can only speak for myself that I am constantly operating within and it it's it's discouraging like there is no reason that this department public safety and wellness legislation did did not get you know the feedback and support of the administration especially when you've had when you have 11 council members that are signed on to this bill that means unanimous and it it passed through council three committees and council unanimously. So 15 council members felt as though this legislation was not only necessary, but was the direction in which the city should be moving in. And I just find it incredibly hard to understand why wasn't the administration there and in support of this. The voice you hear is Atlanta District 3 City Council Member Antonio Brown, and we're talking about a feasibility study that would outline creating a Department of Public Safety and Wellness. And of course, there are some other initiatives tied to that. Let's dig into that, but also just want to get some feedback in terms of have you been able to speak with Interim Chief Rodney Bryan at all? So I have not been able to speak with Rodney Bryan. And, you know, I've spoken with a ton of men and women in the uh, police and fire departments. I've spoken with other chiefs. I've spoken with Sheriff Labatt. I've spoken with the Atlanta Police Foundation. 
and everybody has been in complete support of this legislation. I mean, the Atlanta Police Foundation said that a lot of these recommendations, not only do they support, but they've been advocating for for the last two years. And that spoke volumes to me. Let's talk about the vision behind creating this. When you're talking about a public safety and wellness, let's go over what specifically you all want to see from this feasibility study in terms of the recommendations and how this could work. Sure. So I think there's some major components to the legislation that stand out, right? Mm -hmm. The goal and purpose of this legislation, after speaking with police officers, fire fire members, folks that are experts in public safety, what was determined was that you had a lot of police officers out here performing tasks in which they were not trained to do. (laughs) And they were becoming more of a social worker than a trained police officer to enforce the law. And in doing so, it created this overwhelming burden, as well as, I believe, a low morale in this department because because they were not being supported in the way that they should have been supported. Honestly, Rose, I remember when I was writing this legislation, the purpose of me writing it was because I was looking at how do we bring two sides of a, of a spectrum, the defund the police folks, the fund the police folks, and how do we meet everyone in the middle and, and, and find a place in which we can all agree on. Mm-hmm. So I was very intentional when compiling this legislation from hearing from everyone. I, I did not limit no one from making recommendations or providing feedback on how to strengthen this legislation. So part of what the police had said was, hey, we're doing, we're out here doing community-oriented functions that we're not trained to do. Why are we doing this? So we looked at establishing in one of the recommendations a new division of non-emergency response. Mm-hmm. With that division would come a non-emergency response number. And we've had conversations about this before because often when someone calls 911, thinking it's an emergency, an officer, I mean, obviously they don't know what they're walking into. So you want a separate non-emergency number that folks can call. So the goal is, is that this new division would be a complete separate division from our emergency members. So from our police and fire members, they would call this non-emergency response number that would address non-emergency issues like the unsheltered population, those that are struggling with mental health you know, issues, non-emergency issues that don't rise to egregious crimes at home or at school, issues that we see playing out every day in our communities. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we were intentional about, Rose, in these recommendations is establishing an office of communications that would fall under this Department of Public Safety and Wellness to coordinate efforts of 911 as well as this new non-emergency response number because 911 center was being inundated with non-emergency calls, which was creating an influx in calls and increasing the whole time. Mm -hmm. So this would help alleviate that. Let's talk about structure and how this would fit within Atlanta city government. So this would be a separate department, obviously, but it would fall under, I guess, would it be under law enforcement? What department would it fall under? So this Department of Public Safety and Wellness 
it would be its own department. There would be a commissioner that would report directly into the mayor. And I don't know if you recall, but Mayor Bottoms previously had a commissioner of public safety mm -hmm. um, that was funded through an outside organization. And after the funding exhausted, the position was never reinstated. But after speaking with Sheriff Labatt and others that reported into this commissioner of public safety, they thought it was a brilliant mm -hmm pathway. They thought it was a really great opportunity to bring emergency personnel together to address citywide issues so everyone was on the same page and in sync. Can this work with Mayor Bottoms, One Atlanta, One APD action plan? And have you reviewed that? So I have reviewed the action plan. And I've also spoken with Dave from the Atlanta Police Foundation. He's in full support of this legislation. And he says it's in direct in alignment with the One Atlanta, One APD plan. And the reality is, is they've been pushing for a commissioner for the longest because structurally it makes sense to have a chief of police reporting up to a commissioner, having the chief of fire and rescue reporting up to a commissioner, and then having whoever is the chief of this newly formed division of non-emergency response reporting up to the commissioner really creates a structure, an infrastructure that really provides the highest level of efficiency and impact to ensure that we have the most adequate folks on the streets supporting our residents and also supporting our most vulnerable population. Now, let me ask you this. Here comes the money question. Will your feasibility study look at a funding structure for this as well? Absolutely. So one of the requirements is, is which is why this legislation came before the finance exec committee was to evaluate that. But Rose, let me tell you, we looked at creative ways without creating implications within the budget. Like we have 350 APD vacancies right now, mm -hmm. taking a percentage of those vacancies and moving them over to this new newly formed division of non-emergency response. In addition to that, we also recognize that there is a potential closure of the Atlanta City Detention Center. Mm -hmm. There is a chief of ACDC. There are personnel within ACDC that are already doing community-oriented functions. So why wouldn't we look at, when repurposing these positions, retraining and seeing who could move and transition to these newly formed divisions? I'm glad you brought up the detention center. What should happen with that building? So, Rose, as you know, I sat on the task force. Me and Councilmember Westmoreland were the two council members that were a part of the task force. Now, I have to be honest, I didn't attend every one of the meetings. But from what I grasped, you know, I'm not against a center for equity. <laughs> what, what I need clarity on, I asked at our public safety work session for the Atlanta City Detention Center is, I need to understand the ramifications of individuals that come in contact with our jail, what those offenses are, and if we close the jail, would these individuals be forced to matriculate over to Fulton County and face a potential permanent record that could follow them for the rest of their lives? That's a concern for me. I asked the question and I really didn't get a clear answer on that. The other piece of this is, is that, you know, I'm really close to this, to the human rights organizations, civil rights organizations here in the city. And a lot of them believe that we're moving backwards by not closing the jail. And again, 
Rose, what I, I find so often in this city is a divide. You have people on one side of the spectrum and people on the other side. Some that want the jail closed, some believe by closing the jail it's gonna increase crime in the city. But I, and, and I've said this to Sheriff Labatt, and he's agreed, there is a place we can all meet in the middle to address how we move forward with the Atlanta City Detention Center. We have to do a better job of bringing the city together. Welcome to politics, Mr. Brown. You've been on council now for two years. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> As we wrap up, what is the timeline for you all to get this feasibility study back where you can review it? And then in between all of that, how optimistic are you? You all can sit down with the mayor and the police chief and collectively work together because at the end of the day, Nobody wants more lives lost, and especially not seven-year-old girls. I agree. At the, you said it best, Rose. At the end of the day, I don't care what side of the, t uh, of the city you live on. Everybody wants to be safe. Everybody wants to feel like their kids can walk to school and not have to worry about being shot and killed. That's the facts. This study is slated to be completed in 120 days. We're going to be holding two work sessions in between that time period to meet with the public, to get their perspective, to weigh in on how we continue to shape establishing this Department of Public Safety and Wellness. And I'm going to tell you, I have faith that the mayor is going to really listen to these recommendations. She's willing to, to see what the study says. And I appreciate that because that's all I, I ask for. And I believe, again, it's something to be said that 10 other council members co-sponsored this legislation and believed that this was the right direction in which we should be moving in. Atlanta District 3 City Council Member Antonio Brown. We've been talking about new legislation he's introduced which aims to establish a Department of Public Safety and Wellness. He received a unanimous vote to move forward with the feasibility study. Councilmember Brown, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. No, absolutely. And, and Rose, if I could just say one more thing that I think is incredibly important because I've gotten quite a bit of pushback from certain individuals on the spectrum we've been speaking about. People said, yeah, but this legislation is not going to address the immediate issues of crime. And it's not, that's not what it was designed to do. You know, that is something that the executive branch needs to focus on and address within this city. But as a legislator, my responsibility was to create near term solutions that we can work through that would help address the structural issues within our departments of public safety and really create a system that works for everyone. All right. Councilmember Brown, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Keep us posted and we'll stay following this. Thank you so much, Rose. It's such a pleasure. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker, and as you know, he rides a bike. If you missed any of today's show, it's online at wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights 
at 8 p.m., as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Now, again, as mentioned earlier, the memorial service for Braves legend Hank Aaron will be held this week. A private memorial for Aaron will be held tomorrow at 1 p.m. inside Truist Park. And Aaron's funeral, which is also private, will be Wednesday afternoon at Friendship Baptist Church in Atlanta. But we'll have the service live here during Closer Look on WABE. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.